Welcome to We Built This Brand. I'm your host as always, Chris Hill. And today I'm here to talk to the founders of a local Knoxville community, Knox Devs. And we're gonna talk about their latest conference, DevMoot. In addition to that, we're also gonna be touching base with Jeff Procise to learn about his work as the Chief Artificial Intelligence Officer at Atmosera. And if none of that sounds like it has anything to do with branding, you're wrong. We're gonna talk about why. Because there's a lot of branding and there's a lot of marketing that goes into starting a local community, building and creating a conference, as well as starting a business and also the personal brand that comes along with writing books, communicating with people, and promoting that content. We'll also, of course, dive into AI. We'll talk about some of the pros and the cons and the challenges of artificial intelligence and what applications that has to marketing professionals. So I think you'll get a lot out of this interview. It was a really fun interview to have all the way through. And it's pretty neat because I get to interview three people, not just one on this this episode. So go ahead, check it out. And uh, can't wait to share this episode of We Built This Brand with you. So let's get it rolling. Well, hey there, everybody. This is Chris Hill. And um, today I'm coming to you from the Relics Theater. Is it the Relics Theater now? Actually, now that I say that, I like Relics I've always venue. heard of like the Relics Venue. Or Relics Variety Theater. Relics Theater. Variety that's Theater. It. There that's we go. It. Yeah, it. we're here at the Relics Variety Theater in downtown Knoxville, where in just a couple of weeks, the Knox Devs community is going to have their first ever conference, DevMoot. So why are we here today? Why are we talking about Knox Devs and DevMoot for marketing and branding? Well, they started a community, they've built that community, and now they're launching their first conference. And I think that's a really cool thing to explore. So we're excited to have with me today, Cody and Adrian, who are the founders of Knox Devs. And we're going to be talking with them a little bit more about this conference, DevMoot and Knox Devs. So with that said, let's uh, dive into it. Cody, why don't you introduce yourself? All right. Well, uh, like Chris said, I'm one of the co-founders, along with Adrian, of Knox Devs. I've been in software development for a long time, 20 years, 25 years. I don't know. Uh, currently, I'm a chief architect for a Canadian company, MDF Commerce, and then, you know, running uh, Knox Devs with Adrian and a, and a bunch of other uh, talented people. Awesome. Adrian. For me, I just got involved with Knox Devs back in 2015. Somehow it's been eight years. And we'll talk a little bit more about the history here in a little bit, but we're excited about this upcoming conference. Yeah. Awesome. Well, it's great to have you guys with me today. And let's talk about Knox Devs. What is Knox Devs? Sure. So Knox Devs is a grassroots 501c3, a nonprofit corporation. It was basically started, and the goal is to just this very simply at a grassroots level, raise the level of technology in Knoxville, providing opportunities for you know, people in the tech community. It's mostly developers, but we have entrepreneurs, we you know, network administrators, database administrators, project managers, all kinds of people. And everyone in tech is welcome and have all represented by all kinds of different jobs and roles. So, and we try to fulfill that niche. There is also the Knoxville Technology Council that, that handles things at the corporate level. And we work together with them to uh, kind of, handle both ends. Yeah, I think really a, a, a big part of what we do or and starting in 2015 was organizing the community. You know, there was already a, uh, you know, somewhat of a community, but it, w- it was uh, a little bit disorganized. It was unclear what, what existed and what didn't. And so I think we just kind of stepped in and tried to clarify and create an umbrella for a lot of the existing 
meetups and, and, and technology leaders of the community. And it's, it's neat that you all have done this from like a grassroots effort. It's not an organization that came in and, you know, just said, Hey, we're going to try to start a group here in Knoxville. You all decided to do it on your own. In fact, well, it's interesting. We're doing a conference. It may be our last. I don't know if we'll do it again. We'll see. Uh, yeah, it's, it's our first. Um, it's 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 exciting and, and fun, and it's been it's been good so far. And I'm, I think it's going to be it's going to be wonderful, a uh, wonderful event. But you know, Adrian and I came at this kind of different ways. But at the same time, back in 2015, for me, I, I was at Codestock actually, which is a local conference that's uh, you know been really successful for for many years and recognized you know the need for an organization because we had a pretty good uh, you know size of de- developers and 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 all that but you know again lacking the centralization and it, to me it was kind of a light bulb and I was talking with Greg Ostermeyer at Codestock and he said you should talk to Adrian whom I'd never met at the time and he was actually doing a, a talk at Codestock so Greg introduced us. And Adrian was kind of thinking the same thing. And so we just uh, combined efforts and, and, you know, here we are eight years later. Yeah. So Cody at this conference, so Greg talked to him about this thing called Slack, this new tool that was kind of cool at the time. And a lot of other tech places were using it. And so Cody went ahead and just registered noxdevs.com, noxdevs.org and signed us up for a Slack account. And so by the time Codestock was over, I think we had a, there were a hundred people on it or something. And, and so he had started from that direction at the same time, I had been meeting, I was leading a, I think, Agile Knoxville, a local meetup group. And I was working with uh, James Horry at the time, who was hosting and leading different meetup groups. And we would sometimes have conflicts where one group would have a meeting on a Tuesday night and someone else would also have a meeting on a Tuesday night. And then your, your people would say, well, gosh, I can't go to both of them. So James and I had been talking about what if we were to get all these different meetups together and let's try to coordinate, we can cross pollinate, we can, you know, not, you know, you can, we can share like, well, you know, who, what recruiters are helpful, things like that. What are, where can we, what are meeting spaces? So he and I had, had started that. And then Cody came along and started this kind of grassroots, or grassroots Slack group. And we said, James and I said, oh my gosh, we need to talk to Cody. I'd say the first ever meeting was July 7th. 2015 at Panera and Cedar Bluff. And so we got together and a whole bunch of people running different meetups. And we said, hey, let's put this together. So you grew from there and it's been eight years now. How did you all fare during the pandemic? I would imagine that was probably a really challenging time for a community to be keeping going. Yeah, I'll back up a minute. You know, when when we were talking about, um, like back in, in 2015 at Codestock, one thing you know, Greg Ostermeyer mentioned was Slack in Chattanooga. So that uh, there's a Chadev, you know, they had a Slack group. And the, and the light bulb for me was Knoxville is so geographically dispersed. You know, we're really spread out more than a lot of cities. There's no town hall, so to speak. And so that's a challenge for us. And so when I heard Slack, I thought, you know, it's the virtual town hall, you know, and it's like, it totally made sense. And I think it, it resonated and, and that's, you know, we've got over 2000 members now, but I think because of that, that helped us a little bit in the pandemic because we're virtual. We're, you know, a lot of what we do is virtual now meetups definitely, you know, in, in person meetups have, have suffered. And, um, you know, we're always looking for ways to help the community, whether it be meetups or other things. So yeah, it was, cha- it was challenging, but, and, and we also kind of just, laid off a little bit. It's like, we just relax. Like, let's not kill ourselves during this pandemic. Let's just, you know, see how it plays out. And so, you know, here we are. Cool. And, and I mean, like coming out of the pandemic, 
you know, people start to be able to meet again. And I, I know a little bit of what this is like because I'm actually on the board of the American Marketing Association wow. here in Knoxville. So we, we've dealt with the same kind of similar, like, do we come back? Do we not? When do we start having things? So I would imagine, like, there's probably been some shifts. What um, what have you all seen now as a community? One thing we've seen is we're so used to be, we're as an umbrella organization that kind of helps local tech meetups, we're seeing a lot less participation in people coming out to meetups. For example, where it used to be, you know, maybe 20, 25 people would come out, would show up on a Tuesday or Thursday night, you know, and talk about technology. You know, a lot of them are struggling. And some organizers who, you know, used to, you know, used to run these, you know, have now just said, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing anymore. I work from home. I'm busy or, you know, just different stages of life. So, but we have, so we've had you know, a couple of what we, Knox Devs events. We call them quarterly events, although they're not really quarterly, but what we have had, like, I think our last one, we had 87 people there or something. So, you know, and that's, that's a pretty great turnout, you know, um, for, you know, for a tech event, you know, in Knoxville. So. I, th- I think it does help. The quarterly events are good because, you know, monthly it's tough. There's, there's a lot of events out there. People are constantly on video calls. And so the quarterly event is, is good for us because, you know, people really crave that social interaction and um, it, it's a pretty good uh, rate for us to meet every quarter. You're looking to reconnect with people. And so that, that, I think that that's helped us. And then of course we get to DevMoot. How did the idea for DevMoot come about? I would say it's it's pretty simple. Um, you know, I mentioned Codestock, and which is a great conference. They've had, you know, 1,000, 1,500 people every year. It's a great thing for Knoxville, and uh, it didn't happen this year. And, you know, that disappointed a lot of people, you know, myself included. Um, it's a great pay- place for, for people to get together and socialize, you know, um, with not just from Knoxville, but all over the region. And, um, you know, for various reasons, it, it, it didn't happen uh, this year. And um, so we... You know, a lot of people were uh, eager to to do something, and we thought, well, let's we'll just knock, let Noxdev step up, and so we've we've organized this. Um, and, and again, we we'll, we don't know if we'll do it next year. You know, hopefully, Codestock will be back, but um, we'll 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 deal with that next year. Yeah, I think as soon as Codestock announced that they weren't going to have the conference this year, people immediately that same day started messaging Noxdevs and posting, well, what's Noxdevs going to do? And you know, kind of you know, in a way flattered and kind of terrified at the same time thinking, well, no, no, that's not, we can't, we cannot replicate code stock. We don't want to. So, but when enough people asked, we, you know, we started talking and we said, well, you know, we could probably, you know, do something, you know, smaller, easier, simpler, you know, not try to replicate code stock. But you know, even if, if they were back next year where it could be something that's, you know, um, that's adjacent to it, you know, different time of year, different topics, that sort of thing. Additive. So. And, and we had some, some early strict tenants from the beginning and it, you know, one was keep it simple. So we, we chose a single track, you know, single day and uh, we wanted to avoid the mundane. So, you know, one challenge we have is just about any topic you're interested in, you can go on YouTube and rather than see, you know, somebody local talk about it, you can see the guy or gal who created it and hear it, you know, straight out of their, their mouth. So we have to find ways to make it interesting, you know, to, to have this conference here. And so we really wanted to avoid just like the basic topics and we wanted to focus on more cutting edge things. We've got a few AI talks, we've got quantum uh, computing and, you know, a web three, which is always fun to, to discuss. So, and then also social, it was a big part of it, you know, keep it social um, because I think people crave that they come for the, the talks, 
or, or they really come for the social, you know, that the, the talks are a re- reason to get out. But I think, that, you know, a lot of people come for the, the social aspects of it, the networking. And I think that's part of the reason where you were planning to have a, you know, a, a cash bar, you know, and so beginning around lunchtime and there we go with appetizers and hors d'oeuvres, you know, later in the day, just a, just a happy hour for people that want to stay around, you know, because sometimes at, you know, events like this, especially everyone working from home or not everyone, but you know, a lot of working from home, we only see people, you know, maybe at once a year. And so I, I know at, you know, at Codestock was a time I would just you know, reconnect with people that I only see at Codestock, you know, that are, and then I, you know, can hear what they're doing and what's, what's new and what are they working on and how's their family doing and things like that. Yeah. So, so circling back to your point though, it does, it, the pandemic did make things challenging. And, and, and now that there's so many people working from home, um, it's, it's a different landscape, but there, but people crave that socialness more and, and need those opportunities more. So, you know, in, in some ways it helps, I think. Yeah, I think with more people working remote, you see a lot less people coming out to events during the week because they're not coming from work. Right. They're coming from their house. Exactly. Uh, they're yep. leaving their comfort yeah. zone. Yeah. So to do something like this is more like, I'm dedicating a day to be out there. Yeah, I'll do that. Yeah. That sounds a lot of fun. Like a lot of fun. And it, it's strange. You know, you cut out your commute. You feel like you'd have more time, but that time just gets sucked up. And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, one other thing I, I, I always feel really strongly about and wanted to mention as far as like building a brand, you know, like back from when we started Knox Devs, to me, there's this kind of exponential aspect of working with others and standing on the shoulders of others. You know, like I feel part of the impetus or, or the reason that we were able to get Knox Devs off is because of Codestock and, you know, and, and Codestock had founders and, you know, there was like the .NET meetup group, you know, many, many, many years ago that, that um, turned into Codestock. And so like, I really feel strongly about how individuals can make a difference. And, um, I, you know, really see that with Codestock and other group. And that's my goal is to inspire other people to like, you can make a, a difference as an individual and then you know, inspire others. And then, you know, hopefully Knox, Knoxville and areas like this continue to blossom. Yeah. And I would, I would add to that. So one of the things that we've been able to do, like, you know, even if you're, you know, inspiring people is great, you know, feel like to start a meetup or start a similar group in another town, or, you know, we've had uh, people mentoring high school students, for example, and people taking time to mentor, you know, new people who are doing career switches. And I can't, I lost track several years ago of the number of people who have gotten jobs just through Knox Devs, through just word of mouth. You know, some, someone will mention something or you meet someone, you know, and then next thing you know, you're like, oh, wait a minute. I remember I heard so-and-so was looking for someone. You make that connection and next thing you know, they have an internship or, you know, or a job, which is, which is really exciting to me. That's fantastic. It's, it's the only way to hire, you know, through those social connections almost, uh, you know, it's so much more valuable than, uh, you know, a, a paper resume or, or whatever to get that reference. And yeah, it feels great to see that people get getting hired and starting uh, ventures and all that, that sort of thing. It's amazing. And Knoxville has a great tech community too. Like I think it's a very low key. I mean, during Knox startup week and things like that, it becomes more prominent and more prevalent, but I mean, there's a lot of tech entrepreneurs around here. There's a lot of developers and people that are doing a lot of high tech stuff to begin with. So, you know, the fact that you all are fostering that community and hopefully inspiring even the next generation of organization leaders, whether it's Knox devs or whatever the next iteration is, I think is really cool. So, and you know, we've got the benefit of ORNL in our backyard and a a great research university and uh, you know, even like Pellissippi state, it's a fantastic community college. They're doing a lot of good things there. So 
yeah, it's, it's a great, great place to be. Awesome. Well, why should people come to DevMoot besides the, the bar opening at lunch? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're trying to make it a really cool event uh, in, in all aspects, you know, great social, great talks. Uh, Jeff Prosas, I think you'll, you'll be talking with him. He's uh, a really good speaker and, you know, wrote a book on AI recently. So some great talks. Um, the Relics is cool because like, right, uh, I don't know if you can see it, but over there's an alley next uh, you know, right out this door. So there's a, a, a kind of a sealed off alleyway. So there's a great place to, for people to go conversate. We'll have some tables set up out there and, um, you know, some good swag, some good food, uh, plenty of coffee and, you know, a lot of, a lot of great people from the, from the community. So why not come? And where should they go to register? Devmoot.com. Just real simple. You can see what it's all about. The schedule, speakers, you know, link to tickets, um, just all kinds of information there. And so, and I would add to that, you know, is when we started this, we said, if we can't do the conference well, then we let's don't do it. And so this is our first conference and we will make some mistakes, but so far things are coming together pretty well. And one great thing about that is we had you know, a bunch of great sponsors. So, you know, one of those, you know, premier staffing partners who has actually been a sponsor of Knox Dev since 2015, that yeah, we are a very low budget, uh, high volunteer organization. So we, we get a whole lot done on a shoestring budget, but we've always tried to do it well. And, and the premier and, you know, especially Chris Ann has always, always come through for us there and James and really appreciate their support. But in this conference, we've had a, a lot of other, other sponsors step up. So we're going to have a, actually a great lunch. We're going to have, you know, um, refreshments all day long. Cody mentioned coffee, but there's also tea and lemonade. Um, and then we're going to have, you know, hors d'oeuvres in the, in the afternoon, you know, very you know, nice hors d'oeuvres. So it's, you know, it's going to be a, a good conference with great talks, you know, good food, you know, just great sponsors, a good, a just good quality overall, a great venue. And it's going to be social and laid back, but also very professional. Yeah. And I, I'll say um, we're a nonprofit and, you know, the way nonprofits work, people uh, are doing this because they want to, you know, nobody's getting paid for this and it takes a lot of people. Um, we've, you know, Katie Cleveland and, uh, Andy Cal and just lots of other volunteers really, um, helping make this thing successful. And, and, and throughout the years we've, we've had, a, um, we've, uh, pulled off a lot of cool events. We've, we've done, you know, hackathons with hundreds of people and we've had events with mayor of the city and the county and, uh, you know, events in the sun sphere and at the museum of art. So, um, I think this is going to be just another fantastic event. Excellent. Well, we're looking forward to it. And speaking of branding and, and kind of on the shoulders of others, one thing we should mention is we should mention Alex Pulowski. who was here for several years and created our, our logo, I think. And just so much of what we use today in Knox Devs is, was created, but it was, he worked circles around both Mia and Cody. And so it made us look great when he was doing most of the work. Yeah. Uh, the visual elements mean a lot when you're creating a community, creating a brand, anything in that respect. I mean, even down to how the KD is connected probably means something when you went to design um, that logo. Uh, it's a secret though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a secret. We'll leave it at that. Um, but yeah, so so Cody, Adrian, thank you all for being here today. I'm excited to um, be coming to the conference and I think there's going to be a lot of people that are going to be excited to be there. So um, yeah, if you've not gotten your tickets yet, devmoot.com. We'll have links um, in the show notes here for anybody who wants to check it out and get registered. And um, with that said, we're going to move on to the next part of this episode with Jeff Procise, where I've got a great conversation ahead. So stay tuned. 
All right, Jeff, welcome to We Built This Brand. Great to be here. Really excited to talk to you today. Um, as you may know, as listeners already know, we're talking a lot today about the DevMoot conference, and you are going to be the keynote speaker at the conference. So I'm really excited to just be able to sit down for a little bit and have a conversation with you about, I mean, frankly, some of what you might be talking about so people get an idea of what's going to be going on at the conference and then learn a little bit more about you and your background. We built this brand as primarily a show about branding and marketing. Also, we, we like to talk to founders and people that have started their own business, their own brand from the ground up. And you have done that. And not only have you done that, but you've managed to successfully leverage that into selling that company and growing into an even bigger brand. So today I'd love to just dive into that a little bit first and talk a little bit about your background there. So take me through, where did you get started? That's a great question. Um, and I've been at this for 40 years or so, so there's probably not a short answer, but I'll try to make it as, as concise as possible. So I started my career uh, as an engineer, went to the University of Tennessee and studied mechanical and aerospace engineering, uh, graduated in the early 80s and um, you know worked as an engineer for a few years, but also got introduced to, to computers, personal computers, and discovered uh, a love there. In fact, I felt I was a lot better at writing code than I was at designing engineering things. So some of our uh, listeners may remember a, a magazine that was pretty popular back in the day called PC Magazine. I do. Yeah, I got a gig writing for PC Magazine. I was contributing editor there for several years. Also at Microsoft Systems Journal, which was really a, a great periodical in the hardcore tech industry back in those days. Uh, 1990, I decided to make a, a big career jump. It was a little scary at the time, but uh, I guess in retrospect, it paid off. Um, I retired from engineering and uh, started writing my first book, continued writing for the magazines, uh, wrote my first book, hit the speaking tour and things like that, started doing consulting and training for companies and, and basically did that all through the 90s. Then in 2000, I got together with some very dear friends, and we launched a company named Wintelect. It was originally based in Knoxville, but we eventually moved it to Atlanta, uh, in part because it was easier to find talent down there, uh, de dev talent. So Wintelect started as a training company. Microsoft was our biggest client. Me and two of my partners spent many, many years uh, flying around the world to all the different Microsoft offices in Beijing and Shanghai and Hyderabad and Dublin and everywhere else. Uh, where our job was just to make these uh, software engineers at Microsoft the, the very best they could be, better than Google and better than Amazon. <laughs> that was our mission. So that uh, 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 evolved just a little bit because even in the early days of Wintelect, when we were uh, focused on training, we knew that we wanted to uh, start a consulting division as well, not just to teach customers how to build products, but uh, when a customer wanted it to, to help build that product. So uh, we launched that in 2005. A um, gentleman who's a, a still a business partner of mine today and, and a dear friend, Todd Fine, uh, launched that, quickly uh, grew it so that its revenues were a lot larger than the training revenues. So Winelec spent um, many years not just training developers all over the world, but helping companies, large and small, build uh, software solutions. We did that until 2021, and then we merged with a company named Atmosera, uh, located in Beaverton, Oregon. Um, I work for Atmosera today. Uh, my title is Chief AI Officer. So 
I have a lot of fun because I have a lot of meetings every day with uh, customers and, and potential customers, understanding their business processes, the challenges they're facing, and figuring out creative ways for AI to help them improve their business. Then working with my team at Atmosera to actually build those solutions for them. So I often tell people I'm, I'm having more fun right now than I've had uh, in probably 25 years because AI has changed everything. Uh, I sometimes pinch myself in the morning because I feel so lucky to get to do this for a living. It's fascinating stuff. Absolutely. I mean, AI is even changing the industry that we're working in now. I mean, for those that listen, they know we're a podcast production company at our core. So we we see this stuff coming down the pike all the time with new changes and new, um, you know, new technology because it's directly applicable to what we do. So that's 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 really cool. So so let's go back to when you started Wintelect. You, you said you wrote a book. What was the name of that book? What was that topic? My first book, because I wrote several uh, over a course of about 10 years. My first book was on DOS 5, if you remember that. It was a big deal <laughs> at the time. Um, I do. But I do. <laughs> a, a lot of people don't remember that. My first book was on DOS 5. And uh, Probably the book that when when people recognize my name, or if they recognize it, they probably do so because of a book I wrote for Microsoft Press called Programming Windows with MFC, um, helped Windows programmers, a, a generation of Windows programmers, learn to write Windows apps in C++. Then I wrote a book um, after that called Programming Microsoft.net. Uh, that was in 2001, and at that point, I decided I wasn't going to write any more books. Uh, I'd been doing it for 10 years. Uh, um, things had started to change. The internet had really come along, and, and frankly, people learn in a different way these days. They rarely go to Barnes and Noble and you know look for a book on the technology they're looking for. So I stopped writing then, but but I did write a book last year on AI. It's called Applied Machine Learning and AI for Engineers. Uh, the publisher is O'Reilly. Um, and the reason I wrote it was because, number one, AI is so incredibly important. It is literally changing our lives every day, mostly for the good, and will continue to do so. I often start off talks by saying, when we one day cure cancer, we'll, we will thank AI for making it possible. Uh, and I firmly believe that. So really, with zero expectations for how the book might sell or anything, uh, I did decide to write one more book last year. It was, it was a labor of love. I'm confident it's the last book I'll ever write. And uh, I was determined going into it for it to be fun, uh, not a chore, because writing a book can be a chore. <laughs> and it, wa it was fun. Now I'm hoping to do a second edition of it next year because things are moving so quickly in this industry. Uh, you could know everything about AI a month ago, and there's new stuff to learn today. I can imagine keeping up with that is quite the challenge. In any tech book, I mean, you, you mentioned writing on, on DOS. I mean, I remember being not to date myself, of being a little kid. And my parents' first computer at home was a DOS prompt computer. So to play any video games or do anything like that, I had to figure out DOS. You had to figure it out. Yeah. <laughs> it was a necessity to get by and, you know, CD this and make, make changes and all that stuff. So I, I have young memories of that, young memories of Windows and what that was. And I mean, that's 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 so cool that you got to write those essentially textbooks for a lot of developers and engineers. And how do you I don't want to get into the like the specifics of it too much, but I'm curious, like, how do you go about not only deciding to write that kind of a book, but getting a book like that published? Like, I would think 
just in general, like DOS, Microsoft should write a book on how to do it. But obviously there's a need for other experts in the field to talk about it because there's more nuance to programming than just, hey, we developed this code. You can read this book and find out this information. But how do you go about that? You know, writing a technical book is different from writing a work of fiction. If your desire is to write a novel, anyone can write a novel. It's very, very hard to find a publisher for it. It's a little bit easier with, with tech books, especially if you've been out of the industry uh, writing for magazines back in the day or have a popular blog today. There are publishers that will talk to you, um, and you can probably find a deal if, if you're a decent writer and, and have a little bit of a name. So um, the way my first one came about, PC Magazine was owned by a company called Ziff Davis Publishing. And the 80s was the heyday for Ziff Davis because they had not only PC Magazine, but some other popular magazines as well. And their magazines were so popular, they decided around 1990 to set up a book publishing arm called Ziff Davis Press. So because I was a writer at PC Magazine, they approached me and said, hey, we need someone to write a book on this thing called DOS 5 coming up next year. Would you be interested? And I said, sure. And actually, it wasn't quite that simple. I, you know, I had a full-time job as an engineer. I had a full-time job in the evenings as well, writing for magazines and speaking and things like that. But I ultimately decided to uh, you know, make that jump. Uh, I remember um, it was 1986, I believe. Uh, Bill McCrone was the uh, editor-in-chief of PC Magazine. He, he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately, but one of the most incredible people I've ever known. And he flew me up to New York City, gave me a tour of the, of the office at One Park Avenue, and, and then set me down in his office and tried to talk me into giving up engineering and doing computers full-time, coming to work for Ziff and PC Magazine. And I remember saying, you know, Bill, I'm really flattered, but these PCs are a lot of fun, but I'm not sure they're ever going to be anything more than a hobby, really. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I declined, but by 1990, I kind of had this uh, this inkling that maybe these things were here to stay. Maybe they were even going to become a part of the fabric of our society. So when I signed that first book contract, um, I left my job. My wife left her job as a school teacher uh, and gave birth to our first child. That all happened in the space of a few weeks. So we went from you know a young couple, two incomes, no kids, to a young couple with no income and one kid. And it took me a year of 80 and 100 hour weeks to write that first book. Uh, it just about killed me. But, um, you know, I wouldn't trade it for anything now. So, you know, I, I frequently speak to people who uh, are thinking about writing a book and they say, you know, what's your advice? Uh, the first word of advice is don't. <laughs> but the second is just realize, um, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be hard. There are going to be times when you wonder, you know, why am I doing this? And the really hard part comes about halfway through a, a, a book because you've been killing yourself probably for months at that point. You're halfway through and you think, oh my gosh, can I, you know, can I continue this slog for another, you know, three months or six months or whatever it takes to write the book. And at the end of the day, it's about willpower. You have to go into it bound and determined that you're going to finish no matter what. And if you don't go into it with that attitude, it's going to be a really hard slog. I can only imagine. <laughs> I mean, I, I can relate to a degree, not that I've written a book, but I started HumblePod right about the time of the birth of my first child. So 
<laughs> I could definitely relate. My li- wife likes to joke that we had two babies, not one. <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> I totally get that. <laughs> oh man. Well, that's, that, that's really neat. And I mean, you know, uh, of course that writing that book led to, you know, growth in your career. I mean, you, you said you made the speaking circuit and I've definitely seen a lot of, you know, tech entrepreneurs, thought leaders that kind of hit that circuit after they've written the book or after they've um, started a big podcast or what have you. And, you know, what, what advice would you have out there for say someone who is a developer right now or a technical engineer listening to this episode? Cause this is coming out before dev moot. I know we'll have some new listeners to the show. Like what advice would you have to them about, um, doing what you've done? Yeah, it's a good question. You know, today you would do it a little bit differently. I think um, in, in 1990, if you wanted to get your name out there and, you know, get people inviting you to speak and consult and stuff like that, a book was a great vehicle for doing that because, you know, in the early 90s, that's how people learned. You know, we learned from Microsoft Systems Journal and PC Magazine and, and from the books of the day. It was a great way to get your name out there. And, you know, for me, it led to, uh, I didn't really intend to hit the speaking tour, but your first book comes out. If um, if it gets some attention, you know, people start calling you and saying, hey, would you come and speak at, at this conference or that conference? And uh, I foolishly said yes. <laughs> no, I, I'm kidding there. I, I, I still do typically four to six conferences a year, mostly international. And it's just, I enjoy it. It's, it's kind of part of who I am. Uh, but today, making a name for yourself uh, is a little bit different. You can write a book. Most likely no one cares because books just don't sell that well anymore. People have other ways of learning. So, um, you know, having a popular and well-regarded blog is a really good way to get attention. Uh, being proactive on social media, especially the so-called professional special media like LinkedIn, you know, put out a great blog post uh, that solves a problem people are having or answers a question that that they're asking. And then, you know, splash it on social media uh, to get attention. That's a great way to kind of build that name um, if you want to, you know, parlay that into speaking or or whatever. Um, Very different today than it was then, but but it's still possible. Sure. I mean, I I know some colleagues of mine that have um, other entrepreneurs that have been in that space and even recently been approached about writing technical books and things. So yeah, definitely still opportunity out there for those. That's why I ask. And I'm curious because I'm sure somebody listening to this will go, how do you get to that point? Like, how do we get there? Well, and you know, writing a book today, um, you know, there were a few books that sell really well. Nothing like was back in the nineties. I was lucky. Um, uh, I guess I wrote nine books back in the nineties and a few of those sold really well. If you had a, a good selling computer book back then, you could make a living off of it. Very, very difficult uh, to do that today. But there's still other reasons to write. I mean, one thing about a book is it it, it focuses you. Uh, you may know a subject inside out, but I guarantee that when you start writing a book about it, you're going to have to dig in and learn uh, about the things that you don't know. So it's a really good way to not so much expand your knowledge, but for me, kind of fill in the gaps that you may not even know are there. Um, but then, yeah, when you you know speak or or uh, go into a company, do consulting or something like that, it's always nice to 
have a couple of copies of the book and, and drop them off. You know, whether you deserve it or not, you get instant credibility when they hear that big thump on the table and there's that book book with your name on it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's definitely a good credibility builder for sure. I can imagine. Definitely know folks, a Knoxville luminary, marketing luminary who will remain nameless, but I'm sure people could figure out pretty quickly. Like he started his career. I could tell like he wrote his book and that was his foot in the door. Like I've written a book, like self-published, self-written, all that. And it definitely, um, definitely helped. And I know other folks that have gone more the traditional route like you. And that's really cool. So awesome. Well, let's, let's take a shift now. Like we were talking about the book writing, but like, I'm really curious about what it means now to be chief AI officer at Atmosera. So what is a chief AI officer? Cause I don't think I've seen that title before. Yeah. In fact, uh, you're seeing it more and more before I uh, took on that title, I did a little research and yeah, it's a real thing these days, but it, but it's still relatively rare. So what I do at Atmosera is chief AI chief AI officer is pretty simple. I have a lot of meetings with clients and potential clients. And the high level objective is to um, help them figure out creative ways to use AI to improve their business and improve their productivity. So it typically involves a lot of meetings. Most of those are remote. Sometimes uh, I go to the client side and understanding what their business is, uh, what their business processes look like, or what software they're writing uh, if they're doing that, and understanding where the challenges are. And then uh, what we typically do is brainstorm and um, brainstorm about ways that AI could help them. And what I usually advise a customer is, hey, AI is very broad. There are a lot of things we can do, a lot of things we can't do, by the way. But let's pick two or three high-value targets, problems that we can attack with AI, where we can build a solution for you, and we can easily measure uh, the results of that solution, the increase in productivity or the decrease in time required to do something. And if we're successful there, if we pick those two or three high-value targets and you prove that it makes your business better, then let's talk about other things we can do as well. But my approach is let's focus in, identify those HVTs, and let's see if, if we can't do something uh, magical for your business. So it's a lot of fun, a lot of brainstorming, a lot of whiteboarding. I get a, an incredibly wide variety of questions and, and asks from customers. And sometimes the answer, by the way, is AI can't really do that. One of the, uh, uh, one of the things I, I often do with customers is um, educate them about what we can reasonably do with AI uh, and what we can't. Customers come, you know, in different levels of sophistication. I'm working with some right now. One company, for example, um, has a 30-page, two-year plan, very detailed. It's a strategy document about how they're going to increase productivity by 25% over the course of two years using AI. Well, for me, that's a dream client because they already know a fair amount about it. And now um, I can read that document, go have discussions with them, and we can figure out tactical ways to help them meet that goal. Uh, at the other extreme, we often have clients who call and say, hey, we're trying to figure out this AI thing and we don't even know where to start. We've got this idea that it could help our business and we're certainly afraid that if we don't do it, our competitors will. So, so Jeff, can you help us out? So, 
you know, whether they come in at the high end with a 30-page strategy document or help us figure this out, it's a challenge and it's fun. And that's what I do. And we have some very talented engineers and software developers at Atmosera. If we uh, end up working with that customer to actually build a solution or a solution set for them, um, I usually participate in the in the design and architecture, maybe a little bit of the coding, but I hand it over to my engineering team and, you know, they make great things happen in code. So as we, as you look at the technology itself, like AI, I think there's a lot of misconceptions. Like you mentioned, like they can do some things, but it can't do other things. Like what are some of the main misconceptions people have about AI in your field? A, a lot of folks, because they haven't delved deeply into it, look at it as something magical. It can do anything. Um, I'll give you an example. I had a customer uh, ask me um, a few months ago, if we are designing a new aircraft and we have all the parameters for that aircraft, can AI tell us what the proper uh, angle is for the aircraft's nose gear? And I said, no, it really can't. Um, and unless you have data on millions of aircraft that I can train up a model on, I can't really help you there. So. I think a lot of folks, just because they haven't dug real deeply into it, they have problems, they have challenges in their business, and they're hoping AI can solve it. Sometimes it can, uh, sometimes it can't. So that's why you know education uh, is a big part of it, helping them understand what we can do and, and what we can't. And what do you mean by AI? And I know that sounds like a very basic question, but like, I know it's artificial intelligence. I know that there's a lot of different options for what AI can be. But like, do you have a tool bag of applications you use? Is it custom built in-house? How does that work for you? A little bit of both. We build a lot of stuff in-house. We build uh, machine learning models slash AI models. We also use tools like OpenAI's ChatGPT and GPT-4. Large language models are a really big deal these days. And probably 90% of the calls that I get from customers these days have to do with hey, can you help put an LLM, a large language model, over our internal documents or over our database or something like that? So in that case, we build the solution from scratch, but we lean heavily on those super advanced, super expensive LLMs like ChatGPT um, or Llama 2 uh, or others. That makes total sense. I was just curious if it was something that was developed or, or not. So that makes that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, we do a little of both. And, you know, asked at the question, what what is AI? AI technically is a superset of machine learning. However, machine learning is a superset of deep learning, which is mostly machine learning done with deep neural networks. And today, when people use the term AI, they're really talking about deep learning. Because when you look at today's most sophisticated models like stable diffusion or mid-journey, which do image generation, or Llama 2 or ChatGPT, which, which does text generation, those are all very, very complex uh, neural networks. But I often tell people what AI really is. It is a set of clever solutions to specific problems that computer scientists and data scientists have uh, evolved uh, over the years. Um, there are really two areas where AI is really good these days. One is uh, dealing with computer vision problems, like look at a live feed from security camera and tell me when there are people in that feed. Or look at uh, photos of parts coming off an, uh, an assembly line at a manufacturing facility and tell me which of those parts might be defective and should be inspected uh, by human eyes 
um, as opposed to the non-defective parts. So the field of computer vision has advanced a lot uh, since about 2009, 2010. And those kinds of problems we can solve pretty easily. We can even build object detection models, which look at photos or frames and videos and identify the objects inside it. I was working on a job recently, for example, where a customer wanted to use a, a camera feed uh, with an object detection model over the top of it uh, to tell them when a truck entered their dock area and even to identify what type of truck it was to identify uh, the company who owned the truck from the, the logos on it. Ten years ago, it would have been very difficult to solve that problem. Today, it's relatively easy to do. The other area where AI is really good today is with natural language processing. And that really, well, it started a long time ago, but it was in 2017 that we encountered a, a real milestone when Google introduced uh, what we now know was the world's first large language model. It was called BERT. BERT was essentially the progenitor of ChatGPT and the other GPT models. Um, and with those models, we've gotten very good at doing things like translating text or speech from one language to another, um, and even at generating text. So computer vision problems, problems that involved language translation, document summarization, even text generation, uh, we figured all that out. But when you think about it, in the universe of what's possible, that's a very small piece. The The possibilities there are crazy. I mean, even from my work in the, the digital world, like being able to tell a computer what I want it to come up with visually and it pop up and be almost exactly what I was expecting is just insane. It is insane. I, I've spent quite a bit of time recently understanding how image generation models work, models like Midjourney and Stable Diffusion and Dolly 2 and a handful of others. And I'm with you. You know, um, as a, a former aerospace engineer, uh, I know how airplanes work. And yet every time I fly, when we speed down that runway and we rotate and lift up in the air, it's thrilling to me. It, it amazes me that it works as well as it does. It's the same way with image generation. I know how it works, but it still amazes me, especially when we're talking about uh, prompted image generation, also known as text-guided image generation, where, as you said, you just type in a description and boom, something comes out on the other end that matches that description. That is fascinating stuff. Yeah, and, and what's even crazier is you can not even have a good idea of what you want Tell ChatGPT and it'll give you the prompt to give Midjourney, <laughs> and then you've got you've got your image. It's insane. Yeah, ex exactly right. And you know, one of the remarkable things too is, even though it's text guided, you provide a description and image is generated. If you provide that model with the same description one thousand times, you'll get one thousand different variations of that image. That's because of some some randomness that they build into the image generation process. But yeah, it, it, it's remarkable. And you know, with as models like uh, Midjourney and Stable Diffusion continue to evolve, they just get better and better. You know, everyone knows some of these models aren't really good at rendering hands. You know, sometimes those hands may have seven fingers or something like that. That's not really a fault of the model. It's that it didn't see enough human hands when it was being trained. As the model is further developed and further trained and it sees more human hands, it, it gets better at that. Uh, and some image generation models are better at that than others because 
the ones that are better were trained with more images that contain human hands. So, you know, it's, it's usually not a deficiency of the model or the technology. Uh, it's really a result of how the model was trained. And that's, you know, that, that's a point I, I often make to customers and, and to audiences. You know, we talk about bias in, in AI models, and certainly there is bias. The bias comes not from the model itself, but from the data that it was trained with. At the end of the day, all of the data that a model is trained with was generated by humans, right? Which means there is going to be some amount of bias in the output from that model because all it knows is what it learned from the data that we trained it with. Yeah. And I think that brings us to an interesting point because I know in the marketing world, there's a lot of fear of AI. There's a lot of, oh my gosh, it's going to take over my world. It's going to, you know, I'm not going to have a job in a few years because of it. And even in the tech world, there's a little bit of that with developers and basic coding. I mean, I, I've literally gone to chat GPT and said, I need HTML code that does these buttons and these links. And it spit out exactly what I wanted. And it's, crazy that it can do that. And, you know, if it can do that, then why do I need a web developer anymore? Why do I need some of these smaller people? Uh, or say, sh- I shouldn't say smaller people to be very clear, but <laughs> that was, that was misspoken, but um, you know, I know well, what you meant. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> why, why do I need some of these people helping me? Um, everybody's a very critical part of that production chain, but yeah, like how do you, how do you overcome that? Where do you see that going? So there's no doubt that AI is going to change things. And yes, there are going to be jobs that get obsoleted. My view of it is AI is going to make us more efficient. It's going to make us more productive, make us better at what we do. And yes, there may be less need for um, people who do the, you know, just write the the boilerplate HTML code. But I think history shows that, you know, people adapt people evolve. We have some very smart people who write that boilerplate HTML code. They're going to find other things to do, perhaps ways that they can make a greater impact, like writing a little JavaScript code to make that HTML interactive or something like that. But, you know, to your point about ChatGPT, it is remarkable. It's, um, I often tell audiences, when you go to the ChatGPT website and ask it to write you a poem or a marketing slogan, It's cool, but it's really just a parlor trick. It's how they got attention for it. The real value of these models is, well, there's several, but the number one use case for large language models today is putting them over your company's internal documents to easily surface information. I'm working on half a dozen projects like that right now uh, for customers. Um, Another is putting it over uh, your databases, but... A lot of people don't realize how good ChatGPT is at generating code. I mean, it is really good. It was trained on more than a billion lines of code from GitHub. Uh, In fact, there's a class action lawsuit winding its way through the courts against Microsoft, OpenAI, and uh, GitHub right now because, you know, there's some valid concerns there. Um, Even if they used only code in public repos, a lot of most of the code on GitHub, even in public repos, comes with open source licenses, which may require, for example, attribution to the author. ChatGPT doesn't honor that, although OpenAI is working on that right now. But it's very good at generating code, and and that really that makes us more productive in a couple of ways. One, as a software developer, and I still write a lot of code. Um, part of my job is writing POCs, proof of concept apps for customers. Um, to, so rather than just describe to them what we can do for them, 
I'll spend a weekend or Saturday or something building a POC, push it out to Azure where they can play with it. And it's literally a case of where a picture is worth a thousand words, especially when they see how, how, how well it works. But as a, as a programmer today, most of us programmers used to spend a lot of time on Stack Overflow, you know, trying to figure out how to write a piece of code to do something, go to Stack Overflow, you know, ultimately find an answer by piecing things together. Today, most of us go to ChatGPT. Um, and have it write the code for us. Uh, a few weeks ago, I needed a little piece of Python code, a Python function that would take a PNG file as input and would look at the alpha channel in that PNG and generate a NumPy array of ones and zeros from that alpha channel. So I started to write the code and I thought, well, you know what? I bet ChatGPT could write it faster. I went to ChatGPT, typed in a description very much like what I just gave you, and boom, it spit out three beautiful lines of code that were probably better than anything I would have written, plugged them right into my code and, and, and used them. So it is increasing programmer productivity by allowing us to do mundane things um, more quickly. Now, there are a lot of companies I'm aware of that uh, are not allowing their developers to use it because they're very concerned about, hey, if, if Microsoft loses this lawsuit, um, and they have, uh, this company has put chat GPT generated code in one of their products, what's going to happen? So a lot of um, developers at large companies now are are at least limited, if not completely forbidden from using chat GPT uh, to generate code. That'll all work itself out uh, eventually. But, you know, the scary thing is it's very possible that the plaintiffs will win in that lawsuit and that large language models that generate code will just go away. And that's going to impact not only developer productivity, but the other thing that's incredible about ChatGPT's ability to generate code is this. If you want to put ChatGPT over a database to easily surface information from it, and it's probably the second most common use case today. Guess how we do that? We use ChatGPT to generate a question that a user asks to take that question and generate a SQL query. Then we execute that SQL query against the database. ChatGPT is very good at generating even complex SQL queries. And then we often take the results of the query, pass it back to ChatGPT and say, phrase this response in human terms for me. And by doing that, you can work magic. If you take away the ability of a large language model to generate code, then it's very, very difficult to implement that scenario. I mean, just, just from the marketing perspective, like being able to understand, like one of the hardest things to understand right now in marketing is attribution, right? Like where did someone come from? You know, how do they buy this product on my website and things like that? And being able to tie all that data together, put it in the database and tell ChatGPT to suss it out and then just give you a plain English answer of where everybody's coming from. That'd be amazing. That'd be insane. Yeah. Yeah, and that's really where how LLMs are changing the world. Um, you know, Google for years has been able to take a natural language question that we type and provide an answer, but the deep learning models they were using under the hood could only provide verbatim answers from documents identified through a vector search technique. The beauty of the LLM today is that we can. Uh, we can pose natural language questions and we can get natural language responses. So it's really up the game. And it's why Google, 
uh, feverishly started working on BARD once ChatGPT came out and they saw the impact that it was making. They literally saw a threat to their dominance uh, in search. So LLMs have changed the world. Um, you know, in at DevMood, uh, in the keynote, uh, one of the things I'm going to talk about is what ChatGPT really is and, and how it works. We're going to talk about that seminal event that occurred in 2017 that ultimately led to it. And the, the mic drop moment is that ChatGPT is nothing more than a next word generator. When you ask it a question or give it a command, all it's doing under the hood is repeatedly calling itself, generating the first word in the response, then the second word, then the third word, and so on. It's very good at doing that, but it's just a, a next word predictor. Uh, and once you understand that, once you understand how it works, it gives you a lot of insights. For example, we know ChatGPT can't do math. If you ask it to add two plus two, it'll probably get it right because in the massive volumes of data it was trained with, it probably saw two plus two somewhere. But ask it to add two arbitrary floating point numbers and in all likelihood it'll get it wrong. Why? Because it can't do math. All it's doing is looking at similar questions and responses that it saw during training and generating one word at a time in that output. That also uh, helps explain why it's liable to hallucinate. Guess what? It was trained with essentially a snapshot of the internet in September 2021, plus two massive books databases that are part of a separate lawsuit now. Some of the, the data that was trained with is not accurate. Believe it or not, there is misinformation out there. All it's no doing way. is mimicking. Yeah, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, all it's doing is, you know, mimicking what it learned during training, misinformation and all. Uh, the cool thing, though, is when we put a large language model like ChatGPT over a company's internal documents, we do have techniques for not eliminating, but uh, exponentially reducing the chance of hallucinations because rather than allow it to rely on all the data it was trained with, we limit its scope. We say, here's a question. And I want you to answer it from this context. And then we feed into it pieces of documents that we've identified through vector search, uh, which is just a similarity search mechanism. And I wouldn't say it will never hallucinate, but it's far less likely to. So, you know, that's just a terrific use case. We had a company reach out to us a few months ago. Um, this company was founded by a bunch of engineers about 30 years ago. They had developed some cool IP and patents and products around it and stuff, but these engineers are retiring. And this company is scared to death they're gonna lose that institutional knowledge. So uh, they asked us, could you take internal emails, internal documents, transcripts of video interviews with these engineers and things like that, and, and basically give us a knowledge base that would allow someone once these engineers have left to go in and ask a question and get an answer to it thanks to large language models we can do that it would have been very difficult to do a couple of years ago but that that kind of solution is table stakes these days if, if you work with llms one of the things that makes me a great podcaster is the fact that i'm a verbal processor i have to talk and think and process everything out loud to myself right now and that just helps me think through things and get answers to things. I, I, I'm one of those people that can walk up to somebody and 
completely monologue and get an answer that I needed just by sitting in front of them and talking out loud. So that's that's my background. And why that's important to what I'm about to say is that I have been finding a unique use for chat GBT that falls right in line with what you're saying. And what I will do is I start my Mondays with some weekly planning. You know, as a business owner, I'm sure you know you got to be prepared for your business. You got to be ready for the week. So what I've started to do is I use an application called Descript. I open it up and I just ramble. I say, here's what's top of mind. Here's what I'm feeling. Here's what I'm thinking for the week. It allows me to use my verbal processing skills to think through things and process things and help me on some level there. It's almost like therapy at times because I'm able to talk out loud and do all this stuff, right? And then I say that, and then it gets auto-transcribed, which isn't perfect, but it's still pretty good. Auto-transcribes all of what I'm saying into text. And then I've got a I've got a whole script set up in ChatGPT, and I go, hey, imagine you're my assistant, and you're going to take everything that I've said, and you're going to create action items for my week from everything that I've just said, and it does it. And to your point, it doesn't hallucinate. Like I, I was wondering like why it doesn't make stuff up because it feels like everything there that I'm reading, I'm like, okay, that was good. Sometimes it's not perfect, but overall it does a really good job of like hitting the mark of what I needed to say and do. And it's just been amazing for me because I can just take those action items and I've got them formatted. I've specifically told it to do it in a certain way so that I can put it into Doist. So I've got a digital to-do list once I'm done with this ramble. And it's just amazing. Um, but yeah, like it's a bit of a humble brag, but it's just one of those cool things that I've been processing as you've been talking. Like that's one really cool application for it that I've seen and makes me excited for stuff like ChatGPT. Yeah. I, one of the reasons I love talking to customers about how we can use AI and specifically large language models to help them out is hearing um, the interesting and creative ways that, that they're using um, using it. So we have a, a salesperson in our company, for example. He's a young guy, really, really smart. When a salesperson in our company completes an initial call, we call it a scoping call with the client, just to find out, you know, what kind of, what are they looking for us to do? What kind of problems are they having? You know, what's their budget, if, if you're willing to talk about that? We require the salesperson to fill out what we call a scoping document that answers some basic questions uh, from that call. This salesperson takes the transcript of the call from Teams, runs it through ChatGPT, and says, answer these questions for me, and uses ChatGPT to generate his <laughs> scoping documents. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's about increasing productivity, right? And, you know, finding unique and creative ways like that, that that's why it makes us more productive. You know, you, you mentioned earlier, a lot of people are, are, are afraid of AI. Every time I turn on the news these days, it seems, um, I hear some news anchor or pundit saying, you know, what's the government going to do to save us from AI? Um, and, and indeed, there have been some really smart, famous people like Dr. Jeffrey Hinton, who was at Google. He was one of the people credited back in the late 80s of uh, inventing the back propagation algorithm that we use to this day to train deep neural networks. And he said, whoa, we need a pause on this. Uh, I'm glad there have been other equally smart and well-known people step up and say, no, no, no. Um, any technology be can, can be used for good or bad. But if we put a stop to this, we are disadvantaging ourselves. We have to keep going. We just have to be very responsible at what we're doing. And, and you know, I've wondered... Um, when when people like Dr. Hinton are saying we need a pause, I wondered why. I mean, he I'm sure he knows a lot more about AI than I do. Why is he afraid? 
what am I missing because I don't feel that fear? And I think what it was was for years and years when we trained deep learning models, trained AI models, we, we built them and trained them to perform a specific task. For example, to translate English into French or something like that. When OpenAI rolled out uh, ChatGPT and its predecessor, GPT-3, it was really the first time I'm aware of where the model was able to do things it had not been trained to do. Some of its capabilities surprised even the data scientists who built and trained it. And I think that's probably what gives people pause. It's not that the model is sentient. It's not. ChatGPT doesn't know what it's saying. It doesn't know what you're asking. It is just generating a response one word at a time based on the question you asked or the prompt you gave it and what it has generated so far. But it is able to do things that they didn't anticipate it would be able to do. So I can see there why, you know, we should think about this. But as far as AGI, artificial general intelligence, computer models that can think like a human, we're not even close. Um, it's unlikely to happen in my lifetime. Uh, or your lifetime, you're younger than I am, it's unlikely to happen. If and when that happens, yeah, we we need to think about this, but we're not close. ChatGPT is not nearly as smart as it looks. I, I think I can attest to some of that, but I, I know exactly what you're saying. <laughs> and and that's that's a good point. I think, you know, from my perspective, based on everything you've said and other things I've seen, it's like, especially like people in the marketing world, I feel like the big thing they fear is like losing a job to copy, like as a copywriter to this technology. And I think you're right. I think it's leveraging, leveraging the technology to your advantage and not seeing it as a threat is the real challenge. Um, even with developers, it's like, okay, well, I, I don't have to write basic HTML, HTML anymore. I can just have this do it and build a whole web page for me. Great. Now I can go and tend to all the little tedious things in there and clean it up. So there's, there's all kinds of advantages to that. So that's really cool. Well, we're getting close to the end of our time. Um, so just wanted to ask you a couple more questions. Um, first question is you mentioned in your bio that you love the smell of jet fuel in the morning. Why? I do. Um, so now that I'm no longer an engineer, well, I, I guess I am. I'm an AI engineer, but I'm not a mechanical aerospace engineer. I love things that fly and I miss that. So I have a rather unusual hobby. I build large radio controlled jets with real jet engines that run on real jet fuel. And it's true. I do love the smell of jet fuel. So yeah, the, one of the, one of the challenges to doing what I do, I mean, you can, you can buy the engines. There are dozen or so companies around the world that makes them. I've got four or five jet engines in my shop in the other room there. You have to build the models, build the jets. For the most part, uh, they come as kits and you have to build them out. But buying jet fuel, I can tell you from experience, you don't walk into an airport and say, yes, I'd like to buy 20 gallons of Jet A. They frown upon that and might even be tempted to put you on some kind of watch list. So the challenge is, is getting jet fuel. You can either make it from K1 kerosene if it's pure enough, or if you have a friend at a small airport that is small but big enough to host uh, business jets, you can uh, you know call on a friend to sell you 10 gallons or so. But, <laughs> <laughs> nice. but I, I do love the smell of jet fuel, and I, I love things that fly. 
That's that's awesome. I mean, one of the going back to the DOS stuff and being a kid, like I grew up playing Microsoft Flight Simulator. I have always been a flight sim kid. Um, growing up in Knoxville specifically, I've been out to the Melton Hill RC Air Park. I'm a member there. I had a feeling you were. <laughs> you, you and I have probably seen each other out there. Yes. Maybe, maybe sometime long time ago. I never, never flew out there, but I was always curious. Um, and then a year or two ago, I took my son out there. So we may have seen each other because I took my son out there to go look at it. I'll look at all the planes and all that because he was really curious. We were out, um, out and about. So that's that's really cool. It's it's a neat thing. It's something RC planes is something I've always wanted to get into, um, and especially now as you can have essentially VR planes and things like that. Um, you know, it's it's becoming a really really interesting. I mean, it already was interesting, but it's like even more interesting as a hobby now. So yeah, that or just become a real pilot, which is my dream. But yeah, that would become a real <laughs> pilot. You know, people have often asked me why why I don't have a pilot's license. Uh, I mean, I've you know flown airplanes with friends. We've all done that. But uh, uh, my answer is, I love jets. I love speed, and I've always felt that I would get bored putting around the skies in a Cessna. But let me tell you, if I could buy an F sixteen and fly that thing around. I'd be there in a heartbeat. Yeah. No, I, I don't, I don't blame you. I think it's cool that we have Cirrus aircraft in town too, you know, and they've got yes. their, their little jet. It's not quite as fun as flying an F-16, but, <laughs> but I would take it yeah. if they offer me one, I'd say, yes, let me go get my pilot's license first. And then I'll fly the heck out of this jet for you. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, you don't even have to do that because they provide the lessons with the purchase of the plane. Wow. Well, I, I, I I need last year's book to sell a little bit better than it is, and maybe I'll go buy that jet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that that and atmosphere take off, and you're you're good to go. Um, exactly. Yeah, that's awesome. Uh, well, cool. And then next question for you is, and this is always the big question we ask on the show is like, what brand are you um, are you really a fan of right now, or what brand are you crushing on right now? Two answers for you. One, if we're talking about RC jets, my favorite brand is BVM, Bob Violet Models. Uh, they're based down in Florida. They're one of the few manufacturers of large radio controlled jets in this country. Um, the founder, Bob Violet, unfortunately passed away a couple of years ago. He was a retired Navy fighter pilot and I uh, got to know him well over the years. And I just love his, his company and his brand because they are all about quality. No one makes a better radio controlled jet than Pop Pilot models, in my opinion. In the tech world, it's going to have to be OpenAI. OpenAI has changed the world. They're not the only ones that build large language models, but they were the ones with ChatGPT that really got out there and generated the brand awareness and the awareness of the technology. So uh, they have been masterful at marketing. It's going to be interesting to see what happens long term. I'm not sure. That, that their model right now is economically viable. One reason that is viable, at least in the short term, is Microsoft has pumped in billions of dollars. So we're going to see, but I'm sure they can adapt. It's, I think, the number one brand in the tech industry today. So let, let's see what happens there. They, they are changing the world one LLM at a time. That's really cool. And yeah, I definitely agree. They're a fascinating model and I'm a proud paying customer. So that's really cool. Um, excellent. So... Last, last question for you is, is there anything that you would like to promote? I mean, obviously we need to promote DevMoot, which is coming up and you're speaking there. So of course we'll be promoting that. And of course this whole episode will be covering that, but like, 
Um, is there anything else you'd like to promote while we're, while we've got you? Well, um, obviously DevMoot, really looking forward to the conference. Uh, I speak at conferences all over the world and it's really special to be able to speak at one in my hometown. So, um, I'm not as plugged into the dev and AI community here as I am in other places. So I'm really looking forward to the conference and I hope if you're listening to this, uh, and you, uh, aren't planning to go to DevMoot, give it a look. I guarantee you we're going to have fun. Um, and, uh, not only me, but a lot of other speakers going to share some really, uh, exciting stuff. Obviously my book, it's an O'Reilly book, applied machine learning and AI for engineers. Give it a look. And now you know who to yell at if you don't like it, <laughs> but, uh, but hopefully, hopefully you will like it. And, you know, finally, uh, my company Atmosera, we employ some amazing, uh, engineers, we build amazing solutions for customers, not just around AI, but around Azure and the cloud in general. So, you know, if you have needs along those lines, we would love for you to give us a look, love for you to reach out to me. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to charge you. We can just chat. And who knows, maybe I, I'll give you an idea that will help solve a problem your company is having. Excellent. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. It's an honor. Absolutely. And uh, with that, um, we will hope to see you all at DevMoot on Friday, September 15th. Thank you for listening to We Built This Brand. You can keep up with us at webuiltthisbrand.com. And be sure to follow the show wherever it is you're listening right now. Seriously, it's just a tap or click away after all. And while you're at it, if you've enjoyed this show, please be sure to give us a glowing five-star review. Our producer and host for this episode is yours truly, Chris Hill. Our technical producer is Ashley Lehman. Anissa Ritchie is our assistant producer. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you in the next episode.